people who are here. Pastor Jim, come lead us in the word. Good morning, everyone. Someone's not happy. All right, well, the title of this morning's message is Navigating Through Life's Storms. And you know, as we reflect on a place like Ukraine, um, it can sometimes be like, oh, you know, my issues, my problems, my struggles, my trials, my storms aren't that big a deal. Um, When your houses are getting blown up and people are dying around you and you're fleeing to another country and you're a refugee. Um, But the reality of it is, is that doesn't change what we go through. And it doesn't change the reality of the storms that we have to face in our life. So through the text in Acts today, you know, we, we've been on a lengthy adventure through Acts. We're getting towards the end. We're almost finished. Um, and so um, but this morning's adventure is going to really speak to, um, I think, in a special way, our own attempts to navigate through the storms of our lives. So this morning I want to start by doing a brief review We know that Paul was arrested in Jerusalem. There was a plot there by the Jews to kill him. So he's taken by the cover of night and the protection of a contingent of soldiers to Caesarea to stand trial. And over a two-year period, he has appeared in front of two different governors, and he remains under house arrest there. Paul, not happy with how things were turning out and the length of time he was stuck in Caesarea, exercised his right as a Roman citizen to appeal his case to Caesar in Rome. Rome was where Paul longed to go to continue his gospel mission and where God promised him that he would eventually reach. That brings us to our text in Acts 27, where Paul is setting out on a journey to travel via ship to Rome. As we take a deep dive into this text, there are several important things I want you to observe. Lessons that we can learn from Paul's difficult, challenging, life-threatening experiences. And I believe of these three lessons, that there's something there for you today that possibly will speak to you and what you're challenged with and what you're going through and the storms that you're facing in your life. And those three lessons, real quickly, are, which we're going to focus on more in depth later, is number one, do not allow the circumstances of your life to dictate your theology. Paul's confidence in the Lord is based on the unchanging character and word of God, not on his circumstances. Secondly, God's will for our lives does not always mean smooth sailing. There are times that you can be right smack dab in the middle of a storm, and you can also be right in the center of God's will. Thirdly, we need to bloom where we're planted. Whether it's two years in Caesarea on a holding pattern waiting to be somewhere else, or for weeks on a ship that's going down, Paul continued to faithfully live for the gospel. He never allowed the roadblocks or the setbacks, the delays or major storms in his life to distract him from his God-given purpose, to live for the good news of Jesus Christ. So let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, and then we're going to jump into the text together. So let's pray. Father, this morning as our hearts break and they go out and extend to the people of Ukraine and and all they're facing and all they're going through... um, We want to also bring the truth of your word back home to our very lives. Uh, Because it doesn't make the struggles that we face any less real, any less daunting, any less painful. And so, Lord, we pray as we look at this very challenging time in Paul's life where he's out to sea in the midst of hurricane-forced winds, 
Help us to see and understand what it is that you want to speak into our hearts and our lives concerning the storms we face and how you want to help us navigate through them. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts 27. And we're going to read verses 1 to 12. Then it was decided that we would sail for Italy. Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Andromantrium about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Snidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete opposite Salmon. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lacia. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast, so Paul warned them. Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to the ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. I've got a map this morning, if you want to go ahead and bring that up. And if we start in the bottom right corner of the map, we can see that um, we're kind of beginning in Jerusalem where Paul was arrested. The plot was there to, to kill him. And so we move on from there to Caesarea, where Paul's taken in the darkness of night by a contingent of soldiers fearing for his death, and over two years under house arrest there, he stands and defends himself before two governors. Getting nowhere and burdened to carry the mission of the gospel to Rome, he appeals as a Roman citizen to be heard before Caesar. He hops on a ship under guard and sets out on a one-day journey along the Mediterranean Sea to the first port, Sidon. The parts from Sidon traveled along the Lee of Cyprus, which means Anytime you see that they're trying to kind of hug the coast rather than going straight across the middle of the sea, they're trying to find protection from the land there from the intense winds and, and things they may face. might be smoother sailing. They anchor at the port of Myra where the entire crew, prisoners, soldiers, and other travelers switched ships and once again took sail. They made slow headway for many days fighting the winds. Once again, they find a lee of the island of Crete trying to use the island's coast as a barrier from the harsh winds. And they make it to Far Havens, and Far Havens, you know, kind of sounds like a resort town, doesn't it? Hey, man, we're in Far Havens. It's cool. But you see exactly where it's located. It's sticking right out there where it's being bombarded from every direction from what's coming at the sea. Far Havens is not a fair place to stay. So instead, they decide to try to make it to Phoenix, which would prove to be a much better place to spend the winter. Beyond the soldiers, the other prisoners and sailors are on the ship. Luke identifies at least two other people, and he uses the, the term we 
quite often, and basically it's telling us that Luke was actually, the writer of the, the book of Acts was on the ship, so we get an eyewitness account of everything that's happening during this voyage. He also speaks of a man named Aristarchus, a friend of Paul, appears to want to serve Paul by voluntarily traveling with him. He's identified as a Macedonian from Thessalonica. And he's also mentioned in two of Paul's other letters, both in Colossians and Philemon, as having sent in greetings with Paul from Rome. So it's an indication that he made the trip all the way. He eventually gets there and, and stays with Paul to serve him and minister to him while in Rome. The journey's timing speaks to its ominous nature. The seasons for navigating the Mediterranean Sea are the spring and summer. The dangerous season for sea travel began after September 15th, and all sailing ceased for the winter from mid-November through the first two weeks of March. Verse 9 reveals that the trip took place after the fast, which is also known as the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, which was the only fast prescribed in the Jewish calendar and would have ended in mid-October. Therefore, this trip took place in the fall, which would present dangerous travel conditions, strong winds, rains, and high waves threatening the traveler's safety. After staying a while at their first port at Sidon, they set sail once again, and Luke uses these words and phrases to experience the next leg of the journey. He says, the winds were against us. We made slow headway for many days. The wind would not allow us to hold our course. Much time had been lost, and sailing by now had already become dangerous. They, they weren't very far along the journey, and they're already experiencing the danger, and you kind of understand why most sailors didn't take the sea during this time of year. Acts 27, 9 and 10 says, So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to the ship and cargo and to our own lives also. At this part, Point. Paul's warning is not a prophetic word. It's based on his years of experience and the miles that he's traveled via ship. The various accounts of Paul's sea voyages and acts suggest that he covered some 3,000 miles in nearly three decades on the sea, all for his gospel ministry. As an experienced sea traveler, he knew firsthand the dangers of shipwreck and being adrift at sea. But the centurion responsible for the prisoners consulted with the ship's pilot and owner who disagreed with Paul. I later came to find that the owner and pilot of the ship would have additional incentive not to give up on the voyage to Rome, for the government of Rome offered financial incentives for those who were willing to bring grain during the winter months, the lean months uh, where food was, was sparse, and they'd additional financial incentives for them to travel during this dangerous time of year. I want you to note that Paul's wise advice wasn't heeded, but still will matter for the ship's crew will affirm Paul's credibility later on when it's truly a life or death situation. Let's move on in our text and let's read verses 13 through 26. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted, so they weighed an anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted their board, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Citrus, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. 
We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. So Paul here, he's sailing, trying to get to Rome, and we need to remember he's a prisoner, so he's under guard by a group of soldiers led by a centurion of the Imperial Guard, who is named Julius, who appears to like and respect Paul, who because he gives them some extra freedoms that a normal prisoner wouldn't have. While in Crete, a gentle south wind began to blow, indicating to the pilot and the owner that it was in good conditions to set sail, so they take off again. But it wasn't long before a great northeaster wind of hurricane force blows in, and they lose control of their ship, and instead of being able to dock at Phoenix, they are pushed further out to sea. And so you see here that they wanted to reach Phoenix in the middle of the map there, but the hurricane force winds didn't allow them, so they lose control of their ship, and they drift out to the middle where those squiggly lines are, and they're stuck there battling the waves and the hurricane force winds and trying to keep the ship afloat for 14 days. Well, they finally, we'll see, reach the island of Malta where they shipwreck, and as you can see in the top left corner of the map, Rome is their final destination. The lifeboat spoken of here, which was most often pulled at the rear of the ship, started ramming the stern, and if allowed to continue, would punch a hole in it. If water began to break into the underside of the ship, the grain, which was holed onto the underside, when wet, would expand, would increase the rate, and would start to break the ship apart, causing it to sink. The sailors began what is called frapping, where they wrapped ropes and cables all around the ship to try to actually hold it together. This could give them additional time to float, but it wouldn't have saved the ship. This was something that was only resorted to in times of extreme desperation. To avoid sinking the crew through their own source of income, the cargo grain overboard, which was the main reason why they set sail to begin with. With one caveat, my, my studies, I learned also that Rome actually promised any ship owner and pilot who were willing to save, to have the courage to sail during those dangerous periods, that they'd have kind of an insurance policy, that if they lost all the cargo and their ship was destroyed, if they made it still alive, they could claim an insurance policy with Rome and get some of their resources back. With all these extreme measures taken, things only continue to get worse. In an ultimate act of desperation, the crew is forced to throw out the ship's tackle, which was used for raising and lowering the sails. Its loss left the ship without means of navigation or propulsion. Their only option was just to give themselves to the storm in hopes of riding it out or somebody coming along to rescue them. Acts 27.20 20 says, When neither the sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. And we need to remember that it's Luke that's writing these words. Luke, a solid Christian, a man of faith, who basically the circumstances that surrounded them caused him to give up hope. 
The sun and stars were vital to ancient sailing for they were used to understand their location and be able to plot their course. They, they served as their GPS. So Paul stands up and he does kind of an I told you so. And at first glance we think, well, that's kind of arrogant for him to say, but that's not the reason why he's telling them that. He's saying that statement instead as an attempt to assert his credibility as a voice of reason. And we'll see that that credibility is going to be needed in just a bit. Acts 27, 22 through 26 says, But now I urge you to keep up your courage because no one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of God, whose I am and would serve, will serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Listen, as we read a text like this, we know that none of us are going to experience a life and death encounter on the seas. We don't need to be aware of the ins and outs of emergency sailing techniques to save us when we're on the water when a hurricane comes our way. So what difference can this story make in our lives? What lessons of application can there possibly be? How is this story to be translated to the kinds of storms that we face and the kind of trials we occur have occur in our lives? First, I want you to see that Paul's confidence rests in God's word to him. It rests in his faith and the unchanging character and word of God. That God is for him and is always faithful to his promises in the lives of his beloved children. Before Paul ever stepped foot on this ship, he was promised by God that he was going to make it to Rome. Do you think that through what was being experienced here, that these were circumstances that could maybe lead him to doubt that he was hearing God clearly on that? Heck yeah. God promised Paul that everyone would survive, but the circumstances that surrounded all of them certainly didn't say that, did it? Everything pointed to them not making it off that ship alive. So I think the first lesson that we want to focus on this morning and to try to navigate through the storms of life is that not to allow our circumstances to dictate our theology. And we can do that, can't we? Sometimes something doesn't go our way. We don't get the promotion we wanted or thought we deserved. We didn't get the job or we weren't accepted to the school that we wanted to go. The health issue, you know, that you were so sure God was going to heal lingers on and on. Someone in your life, maybe it's your mom or your dad, your wife, your husband, your child, a good friend, even though you've prayed thousands of prayers, they've never changed or maybe they've never come to Christ. Your dream to be married or to have children is still unfulfilled. Financial struggles seem to persist. You can barely make ends meet. You can never get ahead. Finances are always a stress and a struggle. And these kind of circumstances are real-life storms. They, they can be painful. They, they can hurt. They can cause confusion and doubt about God's love and goodness. We allow our circumstances to determine what we believe about God. He doesn't love me. He doesn't really care about me. He doesn't come through for me like he does everyone else. He doesn't answer my prayers. 
As we near the end of Acts, we've seen Paul go through so many life storms, and yet he remains rock solid in his faith through the most difficult, challenging, and painful storms of life. How? How how can he do that? His faith and confidence in the Lord is based on his unchanging character and word and not on his circumstances. If you think about it, every one of those real-life storms that I just mentioned, that I just listed, they would be wonderful answered prayers, wouldn't they? But not one of them is promised by God. Your circumstances are always changing. Aren't you glad that God never does? He wants you to believe that he is the one true constant in a world of never-ending change in your circumstances, that he is the one person who is always faithful, always dependable, always trustworthy, and always true. Can I hear an amen? Amen. He unconditionally loves us every moment of every day, no matter what we're experiencing and what we're going through. His grace is readily available in abundance to help us in every point of need. His mercy is always available for the forgiveness of every sin we ever commit. He is always with us right smack in the middle of the storm. He promises to lead and guide us through it all and to work some kind of good for us and for his glory. His generosity can never be exhausted. He will provide our needs. Of course, sometimes he provides our wants and desires. Those aren't promised, but he does supply to meet our every need. His comfort never runs out, that in everything you go through, he will give you peace as you lean and rest on him. He promises to work good through every life storm we encounter, and that good is going to be a greater faith and a greater strength, greater character, greater fruitfulness. The promise of our eternal life with him is always secure. It can never be lost, and it is the anchor of our hope regardless of what we go through in life. These are the things that are yours today, tomorrow, and forever. Things that can never be taken from you or never lost. Things that have greater worth than all the dreams and hopes and desires and wants that you could put together. The things that this world could give you. Never allow your circumstances to cause you to lose sight of these precious promises. They will sustain you through every storm you face. And so when we're in the midst of the storm or when we're in a holding pattern like in Caesarea, when we want to be someplace else, we tell ourselves, hey, I may not have this yet, whatever this is, but I will always have all of that. Amen? The second lesson that I think that we can learn from Paul's experiences here to help us navigate through the storms of life is God's will for our lives does not always mean smooth sailing. There are times that you're going to be right smack dab in the midst of a storm or maybe a painful time of waiting and you're also going to be right smack dab in the middle of God's will. Paul's experiencing this huge storm as he is right in the center of God's will. How can that be? Admit it, we tend to think of Christianity as somewhat formulaic. If I do the right thing, if I obey God's commands, if I seek him and follow him, then I'm guaranteed smooth sailing in life. And if we do everything right, if we believe God wants us to do, that he wants us to do, and we're still in the midst of the storm, then we think, I'm either confused and I've totally missed God's will on this one, 
or God has punished me for some sin in my life that I'm not aware of. And don't we sometimes judge other Christians when it comes to this? Be honest, if one of your pastors or deacons or a longtime Christian friend was going through a painful ordeal or an extended trial, would you maybe start thinking, they must have some unrepentant sin in their life. But our study today debunks that thinking. Paul didn't miss God's will. He was right where God wanted him to be on that ship, heading exactly for where God wanted him to go. And he didn't have unrepentant sin in his life. And yet he's experiencing great difficulties. His life is enveloped by a huge, life-threatening storm. If you remember the story in the Gospels about the man born blind, there's some guys who walk by this blind man and Jesus is there and so they ask him a question. Okay, Jesus, who sinned? Was it the man that's blind or was it his parents? We know that he wouldn't be blind if it wasn't because of his sin. Now listen closely to Jesus' answer. Neither. This man's hardship is that the glory of God might be displayed. Hardships for the glory of God? That challenges our, is our theology, doesn't it? We'd rather not go there. Paul's experience in the treacherous waters of the Mediterranean tell us that we can have huge storms swirling all around our lives and still be living in the will of God. It's not some payback for your confusion, your doubt, or your sin. Let's go ahead and finish reading the rest of the text. Verses 27 to 44. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. So they're taking measurements. They're trying to figure out what the depth is underneath the boat. So they, are they coming close to land, and are they going to crash into something, or are they going to be grounded too far out from the coast? Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. So even though Paul tells them, hey, my God is guaranteeing your life, the sailors kind of say, eh, I'm not so sure about this, I'm not so sure about this, Paul. We're going to find our own way to save ourselves. So secretly, they're faking that they're going to set some anchors to help out the situation, and they're really trying to scurry away on the lifeboat. And Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. It's, it's not a deal where it's all or nothing, the, that the prophetic word has to be this exact in this case. Paul knows that if one sailor leaves that ship, what they still have to accomplish, they need men of experience who have sailed before to accomplish the final task to try to see that everyone's saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you've been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. If any of you have been out deep sea traveling, uh, vacationing, maybe you're out deep sea fishing, or maybe you're uh, going to go watch the whales, and it's a long journey out to sea to get to the point where you can see them. Or maybe you're going to do a little scuba diving or some snorkeling, 
and all of a sudden bad weather comes in and you are on this boat and you are being tossed and turned by the waves every which way. My wife, when she was single, said she experienced that and the majority of the people on the boat were vomiting over the side. And that's what Paul's actually talking about here. 14 days these guys are experiencing not just some heavy waves, but hurricane force winds that are causing them to be tossed and turned every which way. And we can imagine that a lot of them are getting sick over and over again. So basically they're not eating anything because they're nauseated, but also that that boat's being so tossed around that there's no place to actually make any food for anybody. But now Paul tells them to eat because they're going to need some strength for this final uh, journey to try to see everyone saved. So everyone is saved. Amazingly, they've made it to the beach on the island of Malta. Nothing short of a miracle by the hand of a sovereign God who reigns over every single storm that comes our way. I would have personally loved to see this text end with all 276 soldiers and sailors and prisoners and passengers on that ship after reaching the island declare, Paul, we now know your God is real. How can we know him like you do? But we don't see that here in in this account, do we? That shows us that every opportunity Paul took to live for the gospel didn't turn into an evangelistic revival service. There was a number of times when Paul used, was faithful to the mission only to experience rejection and opposition and persecution. And yet disappointment in the results didn't deter him from the mission. So that leads us to a final lesson that I see in our text today from, from Paul's travels. We need to bloom where we're planted. Whether two years in Caesarea on a holding pattern wanting desperately to be somewhere else or for weeks on a ship that was going down in a storm, Paul continued to faithfully live for the gospel. He never allowed roadblocks or setbacks or delays or major storms to distract him from his God-given purpose to live for the gospel, to allow his present circumstances, no matter how good or how bad, to bring glory to God. Paul never allowed the storms of life to distract him from that mission, which was to be a reflection of the love and truth of Christ. And on this ship, we can see the subtle ways that he still lived that out. He shares his common sense discernment on the storms at hand, trying to help out the situation. He respected the authority over him, even though a prisoner, while given extra freedoms, he never abused them or took advantage of them. He boldly shared the words of God received through an angel with the non-Christians around him. He encouraged them to eat. He cared about their well-being. Then he prays and gives thanks in front of everyone to God for the food that they just ate or were about to eat. So to close this morning, let me ask you a question. Where's your life at right now? Are you in a two-year holding pattern in Caesarea waiting for God to break through to open the door for you to go to Rome? Or maybe are you right in the middle of a terrible storm of hurricane force that has slammed into your life and hasn't let up? I've been in both situations multiple times. There's a tendency to drift spiritually, to go into a self-pity party, or think that I'll wait to really go all in with God until my dream is fulfilled or my storm dies down. 
You see, both the holding pattern that you may be in or the storm that you're facing, they're both ordained by God. And his promise to all who submit and surrender to this God-ordained period in their life is to bring good, his good, the kind of good that doesn't come from your self-made dreams, goals, desires, but comes from living in the will of God, wanting what he wants above all else, and knowing that if what I want is his will, then one day it will be mine. And if I never receive it, I can trust him that he knows what he's doing and always has my best interest at heart. And what comes from a faith like this is a supernatural peace and ability to rest regardless of whether I'm stuck in Caesarea or I'm surrounded by the storm of hurricane force. Living by your circumstances most often leads to feelings of disappointment and discouragement, disillusionment and defeat. Living all in for the gospel while you're in the storm or in a holding pattern in life is the means for finding peace, rest, joy, fulfillment, and fruitfulness in life. And prepares you for a fruitful life in the future. You know, I didn't share this personal story in last uh, service. But there's been times in ministry where I've been in a very serious holding pattern. Uh, I was raised up in North County Community Church at a non-denominational church, and I was a member for six years. And then for the first six years that I was a pastor there, I was uh, involved in discipleship, involved in um, helping put on events. I was involved in uh, overseeing and ministering all the children's ministry, which was probably about 75 kids. And at the six-year point, I had grabbed a vision, uh, understanding from the other pastors of planting churches, and I felt like that was, God was calling me to that. And I was excited about that. And I felt like I was on the fast track to, to do that. And at one point, at the six-year point, when I'm administering all these children's and youth ministries, I'm praying, God, raise up somebody who will really invest in these teens, that will throw their life into these teens. And God, in that moment, I just heard these words in my head, if not you, Jim, who? Oh, well, God, don't you see? I, I'm on the fast track to plant a church. Jim, if not you, then who? So I surrendered to what I felt God wanted me to do, and I threw my life all in to ministering to those teens. And six years later, God fulfilled the dream of planting a church. And you know what I found? Is that six years of ministering to those teens was the greatest school of preparation to plant a church that I could have ever been in. I wasn't missing out as I prepared for the dream that God wanted to fulfill. So we go ahead and we plant a church and, and we have about, you know, a good six years of growth. And, 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 you know, the church has probably tripled in size. And it's about a 20-year mark of ministry for me. And I feel like, you know, it's time for a sabbatical. So it's set up that I can take a three-month sabbatical uh, but while I'm gone, immediately a number of the leaders and people who were close to me started calling and saying, hey, your co-pastor is basically disparaging you and your wife, gossiping about you, blaming you for everything under the sun. Um, so my sabbatical turns into this huge hurricane of an emotional storm and tempest. And we end up getting some mediators involved from the association of the church that we were involved in. The guy who came was close friends with my co-pastor, basically sided with him on everything, 
And I said, I can't continue to, I can't come back to this. I can't live in unity with this guy who refuses to admit his sin and repent. And so I resigned, not having a job, not knowing where, what I was going to do. And for seven years, basically, we lived in kind of a wilderness experience. But in the midst of that time, the first the beginning of that, those, that, those ta- that, that season, we just wanted to go to large churches, sit in the back row, row be nurtured, kind of lick our wounds, try to find some healing. And, uh, but a couple years in, God started stirring my heart again. And I started doing some men's ministry, and I was invited to a church to preach and started doing other things. And I felt God's call was wanting to draw me back to the full-time ministry. And so um, there was a, a church that I thought was opening a door that closed. I interviewed for a position in Canada where I was one of the last three uh, candidates, and that door closed. Uh, I went back to the church that I uh, was founded and grew up in and spent 15 months there um, believing that I was going to be asked to, to come back on that plurality, and that door closed. And ultimately, while I was there, back at my home church that I grew up in, there was a call from West County Bible Church uh, from a longtime friend, uh, Jimmy Montaigne, who was the pastor of West County Bible Church, and asked if I could come over, pray about coming over and help him because he was suffering with cancer. And so my wife and I prayed, and uh, we felt like the Lord wanted us to bring us to West County Bible Church. And so uh, six months just kind of ministering and things, it was decided that I was going to be installed as pastor with Jimmy. Um, to all of our heartbreak and sadness, we lost Jimmy a couple of years in after that. And I was stepped into the role uh, that Jimmy once had. Uh, amazingly, after five years, God miraculously leads uh, Sam and I together. We didn't know each other. We form a friendship. We start getting knit in heart. We feel like maybe God is wanting to bring these two churches together. And here we are today. The beauty and glory in that is West County Bible Church was never on my radar screen. And I think I look back and I was trying to actually make things happen, you know, by going this way and applying there and doing this. The beauty in it is Emmanuel Fellowship Church. Sam Tunnell was never on my radar screen. These are the kinds of things that God does in the midst of our storms of life. These are the kinds of things that God does in the midst of our times of waiting and longing for something to occur, for a dream to be fulfilled. And sometimes it's that very dream. And sometimes, you know what I can say? He has something better. I am so thrilled of what God has done to bring make, create Emmanuel Fellowship Church and the plans that he has for us in the future. So, sorry, I'm going a little long here. So, let me try to whip this up. So, you know, to, to close, if you think about it, we're actually in a never-ending life of storms that are always on the horizon, living in the now and not yet on this planet as we long for and groan for and eagerly await and anticipate our eternal life in our heavenly home. The storms of life and the time of waiting for God to break through are, are the circumstances that God uses in your life to foster a deeper faith and hope in the one who holds securely in his hands the glory that's waiting for you in the life to come. Don't place your hope in the circumstances of this world. That hope is wrongly placed and you more times than not are going to be disappointed. Place your hope in the unchanging character and the secure promises of a God 
who says, I will never fail you. Chris, why don't you come on up? As Chris plays, I want to ask you just to spend this time reflecting on where you're currently at in your life right now. And which lesson you need God's help in applying to your life, whether you're in Caesarea in a pattern of waiting, or whether you feel like you're on a ship that's going down. What is it that God has spoken into your life and heart? How does he want to change your heart in what you're facing and what you're dealing with to see him become your focus rather than the thing you're waiting for or the trial you're going through? And then ask God, just, God, help me to change my perspective, change my heart, and go all in and live for you regardless of what I'm going through. Go ahead and spend that time now. And then Sam's going to come up and close us with communion in a bit.